What I really wanted to do is uh, productize myself. So boring Naval, Ravikant's framework, uh, Angelist is, you know, if you are an N and one, if you're just going to put yourself out there, your thoughts and ideas, cannot be fired if you work for yourself. So that's why I kind of do the newsletter, the podcast, and other investors is, you know, this is essentially me putting my thoughts and ideas out there. And I'm hoping some people resonate with that. Um, I don't have a clear path to a way out yet. But I think that a few things I've played is monetizing a newsletter, like subscription bases or running ads on it, uh, monetizing the community. Uh, most angel groups charge some amount for them. Or building a fund and then having the 2 and 20 or the 2% management fee, 20% carry model. Is venture capital a viable way out of the practice of medicine? My name is Jeff, and this is How It's Med, the podcast where we chat with people who are shaping the future of health tech and healthcare. On this show, we learn about the stories, secrets, and skills of physicians, founders, and sometimes physician founders of angel syndicates. This time around, we rejoin our conversation with Dr. Rashad Usmani, the founder of Health Tech Investors, one of Canada's newest angel syndicates. Last time around, we learned about Rashad's initial tumultuous journey. This time around, we build on that and learn more about what Rashad is doing with health tech investors. Let's get started. So was your path then, if I'm reading this correctly, uh, one of a physician founder to someone who was considering physician consulting, then realizing that the only real way out uh, would be through physician angel investing? Is that how it went? Not exactly, um, but but close. So what I would say is, when you talk about a way out, you have to define that more. Mm. As a physician, you know, we say we make anywhere from on average three hundred to six hundred k a year, and we look for a way out. We often say, okay, I need to make this much before I I kind of pivot up before I leave out of clinical medicine, and that's to be frankly not a realistic vision. There will be a dip in salary to quite an extent before you ramp up to that amount again. Or you might never, you might be relying on if you raise a fund or if you're investing, carry payout five, 10 years from now. What I really wanted to do is uh, productize myself. So boring Naval, Ravikant's framework, list is, you know, if you are an N of one, if you just gonna put yourself out there, your thoughts and ideas, and I'll be fired if you work for yourself. So that's why I kind of do the newsletter, the podcast, and other investors. And you know, this is essentially me putting my thoughts and ideas out there, and I'm hoping some people resonate with that. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have a clear path to a way out yet, mm. but I think that a few things I've played is monetizing a newsletter, like subscription bases or ads on it. Uh, monetizing the community. Most angel groups charge some amount. Or building a fund and then having it like 2 and 20 or the 2% management fee, 20% carry model. You know, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts, Jen, how you look at what you're doing and monetizing it in the future. I think there's value in community uh, and there's different ways you can monetize it. But right now, my focus is on building engagement in the community and growing the community. Uh, and once I have 
demonstration of value and of trust. You know, a big part of why I do that, I invest my own money alongside my community. Then I think I will monetize it, but exactly how, I don't know. Yeah. And I share that perspective. I think a lot of the attitude that I see from your work with health tech investors, as well as your podcast, is about sharing that learning, building trust, and building community first. I think monetization is a secondary aspect that I haven't figured out uh, or don't aim to figure out just quite yet, largely because I recognize that there is value that needs to be added first before there's anything that can be asked of anyone overall. Um, I think building community like you have through uh, the pitch competition, et cetera, is certainly a really good way to do it. But the the way that I'm going to flip this question back on you is that you started Health Tech Investors uh, and built it around the idea of an angel syndicate. So for those who are less familiar with what that term is, what is an angel syndicate? Why did you choose to build something like that? Uh, and kind of what are the next steps from that standpoint? Yes, and put it bluntly, the goal of Catholic investors was for me to sell online courses to be medicine. And it, it, has, it has pivoted and changed quite a bit since I, that was the initial goal. Okay. But I thought I could teach people how to invest in startups about what I know. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm a fairly new investor, about a year old, I think. I'm closing in on my fifth investment now for the past year. Um, but I think so, in some ways you learn the best from people who are like one step ahead of you, not 20 steps ahead of you, because they're looking at the world and investing in such a different framework with a different portfolio construction, different check size. It, it's hard for me to learn from Mark Andreessen. Well, yeah, you know, in the latest Adam Newman company. I don't have a framework I can apply there yeah. uh, right now. Well, I want to learn from someone who's investing twenty five, hundred thousand, and and very early stage startup, first time founders. Mm -hmm. You know, pick, picking the because, and then I'll I'll I'll, I'll answer your question. Then I'll come back to the strain of thought. Sure. Um, so the initial thought was okay. I'll, I'll launch this course. I'll make this course and I'll sell it. I thought, okay, the best way to sell this is to, I knew where to reach physicians was Facebook groups. This is kind of just a marketing uh, guide if people want. Physicians are not on LinkedIn. They're not on Twitter. They're on Facebook. Physicians who want to leave medicine are on LinkedIn and Twitter. But if you want to reach physicians or practice in clinical medicine in the clinics, they're on locked Facebook groups. And you can get access to them. Our Facebook group, Physician Angel Ambassador. So I said, okay, I will just tell people I'm launching an angel. I just want to teach about an angel invest. Uh, so I posted one post on a physician, one of these physician groups, and I had 280 physicians say, we want to join you. Uh, and that kind of grew to 500 something now, and I've kept it at that for now. So based on that, I asked them, okay, what do you guys want to do? You know, I'm investing in startups, I'm investing in three, and I'm very honest in that group. This is how much I'm investing for a startup. This is my diligence. This is my deal flow thing. And they all said, we want to invest a small check size, one to 5,000 with you. That's how the idea of the pitch came to be. Once I had that, I'm like, okay, I need a website. <laughs> so my, my, my wife, uh, 
No, I don't think you guys have met. So Lindsay is my wife. I don't know if you guys that. Didn't know. Um, so she she kind of designed the website, and she, and then we've kind of been working on the website. And since then, you know, I already had the podcast. Uh, and I was posting on LinkedIn. We kind of everything under that. So now it's this educational angel syndicate platform. An angel syndicate is essentially angel investors, which are accredited investors, uh, and that's based on uh, on your net worth or your salary. You can just Google it, depending on the country you're in Canada, the states in Canada, I believe it's two hundred thousand per year inside outside of your primary residence for the past two years. In the states, I believe it's two hundred fifty. So once you're accredited, you can start investing in startups. If you look at the markets as public equities, which is stocks, uh, bonds, and all that sort of private equities, um, which is uh, you know private equity like traditionally private companies, very early on, um, these companies are called startups. And to invest in them, generally, you need to be an accredited investor. And it's partly because the, the Security and Exchange Commission, the SEC, wants to protect people from being taken advantage of. There's a whole other discussion about crypto and people have been allowed to invest and lost money. And, you know, having wealth doesn't give you the just because you make money doesn't mean you're not invest. But it, it does mean that you can probably lose somebody without it affecting your law. So, you know, my thing so an angel syndicate is essentially, you know, credit investors, you get together, and there's different ways you can do it. You can either invest individually in companies, or you can pool together, which is what I'm doing. And what pooling together allows us is to invest more so we get more rights when we invest in the company. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Does that answered the question. Jim? You did. You did. Thank you. Uh, I'm learning. Um, so, I mean, you just finished off the pitch competition with uh, the support of the Angel Syndicate. So, reflecting back now, uh, what were the motivations specifically behind the pitch competition? And did you succeed in your goals? And if you didn't succeed in some areas that you wanted to, where did you fail? So first of all, thank you for you and Sanj and Rupin, because I couldn't have done without you guys. Thanks. Thanks for stepping up and doing a lot of the, the Grant and Scott work. Um, and, and also for offering your opinions and thoughts. I think you guys are all, you all have your strengths. You're all smart and, and intelligent and very capable. So I'm thankful for that. I think, um, I would say it was, a it was overall a success. There's definitely things we could have been done better from my end in terms of organizational operations. And we still haven't closed on the investment because I'm going over the legals, and the 350 pages I'm reading, legal documents that take some time. I did have a family emergency would, would set things back a little bit. But once this one is done, I'm hoping the next ones are more streamlined. And a, and a little thing would be, we would get all the startups applied before we start screening them. As you know, what happened in this one, we had 36 startups applied the last day, which is a bit of a lot. You know, so yeah. So it was, it was, we had to kind of go through the last few ones very fast. Yeah. And what that led to is it kind of, even though investors saw my thought process on all of them, it wasn't as 
educational as the first 30 or the first 40 startups. Mm-hmm. So I think with focus on the educational components is important, teaching investors and teaching how we're doing the diligence. You know, this as the market evolves, the things we value, the things we focus on will change as well. Mm-hmm. I think one of the, I guess I was digging through some of the changes you've recently made to highlight the ethos behind uh, HTI. And you specifically state that there's a future highlighted by four statements that you put up there. Um, for this little part, I'm just going to do this fun thing where uh, we go through each of them and like to pick your brain as to why you think each of these statements are predicted of the future and perhaps some examples that you can use to highlight uh, your your uh, perspective on these statements. So one of the statements is uh, a digital front door leading to a hybrid home care model uh, for healthcare delivery. Why is that part of the future for you? You know, I took a course from, uh, it was an online course from, from Hopkins uh, about primary care design. Uh, and is that what I want to say? And the main takeaway is people don't want to travel for care. People want care at home. Sick, we want to be surrounded by loved ones and our comfort settings. So I'm a big believer at a digital front door or even a hospital at home model. Because I think it's what people want and it's what's better for society. We'll use the rates of C. diff. Uh, you know, it doesn't make sense to me to build these structures and congregate all the sick people there so they can spread diseases. <laughs> like, like it doesn't, right? Like it, the whole concept of hospitals is so archaic and it's just, from a common sense perspective, it's great for us as physicians because, but it's not good for the patient. Yeah. So that's the primary reason I'm a big believer in digital front door. The other reason is um, the physician workforce shortage to an extent, or the clinician workforce shortage. I don't see that reversing. I think me and you know very well what are the, the reasons that we are burnt out. And none of those reasons are a focus. Even our own organizations have a, have a focus on patient first. Um, our own unions are not focused on us. So, you know, I, I think if you accept, okay, that shortage is the only way to get worse. Well, what is the alternative? The alternative is the patient taking care of themselves to an extent. That requires a shift in liability, a shift in uh, reimbursement, but that's why I believe a digital front door where the small things, the patients just take care of themselves to an extent if they can. And this is based on a study by Deloitte, which a friend told me about, and I don't know if he wants to be named, so I'm not going to name it, where, and this was also 10 years ago, they, they looked at patients and say, okay, what percent of patients actually want to take care of themselves? Because it's, it's, it's important to be screened who you offer the service to. Mm-hmm. Because some patients don't. Some patients come to me and say, you know, you're the doc. Tell me what to do. I don't want to know anything. And that's within their right. If that's what they want, that's what they want. Mm-hmm. But 12% of patients want to be their own doc. And then you have to say, okay, what percent of those patients want to be their own doctor because of ego? And what percent of patients want to be their own doctor because they want the most evidence-based practice? And there is a subsector of patients, as you and I know, that want that, you know. They are happy doing their own strep swab. And if it's negative, not taking antibiotics, they're happy with that. So I think once you identify those patients, this service will have a big uptake. So I'm a big proponent of patients being their own doc. I recognize that means I don't have a job. That's okay. 
I'll be okay. And I think most positions will be okay. And, you know, like innovation, there's jobs lost and jobs created. I think it's the pathway to innovation. The goal should be for quality healthcare to be ubiquitous. Meal level of care to be accessible in Senegal or Mogadishu or wherever. But and what what does a yeah. digital front door specifically offer? Because I think that's to an extent a jargony term that can yeah. mean different things to different people. Yeah, so I think your initial interaction when you're seeking care should be through a digital okay. interface. It should not be a human. It's it's a very expensive, inefficient way where you know whenever you have a cough is to call the doc. Yeah. There are some things we can triage. You know, if you've had a cough for two days, I don't need to see unless you have a high fever, unless you're short of breath, unless you're, you know, you're coughing blood. And there's maybe a couple of other things there, but it's not med- Yeah. Some things in medicine are not, it's not an art, it's algorithm. Mm-hmm. I think this clinic goes back to see the one as it is, right? Don't, don't, when you're looking at these things, don't have preconceived notions. Mm-hmm. But then just kind of look at it as it is, first and foremost. Yeah. The next statement that you use to highlight what you think of the future is uh, solutions tackling clinician burnout while producing a tangible financial ROI for the payer. So, number one, what does that mean in English? And number two, number two, why why do you think that's part of the future? So, until we reach the fully autonomous but doctor-patient model, yes. we need to focus on clinician burnout. Or we will have this gap where, you know, people just aren't getting care and they are suffering because that's happening right now. Like we've seen stories of late cancer diagnoses, especially in Ontario, because, the, you know, things are, things are falling through the crack. Our cancer screening rates are still 60%, um, which to me is like unacceptable for a first world country. So I think talking to us and seeing why we're burnt out, you know, Reimbursement is a big uh, component, liability, or just dumping on a family physician, big component. Partly by specialists, but partly by hospitals. When I refer to, and I'll, I'll, I'll put sick kids on your front and center, they're world-class, you know, pediatric hospital, but their referral forms are, they're just too much. Like, we don't have time to, like, go through the referral form. They should accept referrals from us on a letterhead that just identifies all the information we have. Like we should have a, an account on their platforms. All these things like need to be identified and solutions need to be manufactured to address them because we need physicians, we need clinicians. And I, I know I put nurse practitioners and PAs because we all have the same issues with these administrative forms, administrative bloat and reimbursement, increased liability and all these things. Um, and then you have to look at how, why do people buy things? How do people value what you're selling? Them? I am a big proponent of value-based pricing, not time-based pricing. You're pricing something. But value for a business is money. Value for me and you, you know, you bought that shirt because it makes you feel good and it looks good, you know. But if you're a business, you're not going to buy something that makes you feel good because what makes you feel good is more revenues of the expenditure. So... That's the financial ROI component is the health of a business is looked at as, as the health of a, in a B2C environment, it's different because people value different things at business. Mm-hmm. But in a B2B environment, like you have to 
So increased revenue, decreased expenditure, and generally increased revenue is better mm-hmm. uh, and decreased expenditure. Mm-hmm. You have to show it within three months. So uh, what I'm interested in as well is why you have that two-part statement with regard to clinician burnout while producing a tangible financial ROI. Wouldn't solving the clinician burnout problem itself already provide tangible financial ROI for the payer? So let's go deeper there. How how would it provide a tangible financial ROI? So if the payer in a public health system is the public government itself, and if part of the reason why uh, cancer screening rates are so garbage is because physicians are burnt out and they don't necessarily aren't able to keep track of all the forms necessary to keep all their patients screened for cancer all the time, then if you solve the pro- solve the problem of physicians being burnt out, then you get cancer screening rates higher, resulting in a better financial ROI by resulting or by needing fewer like tertiary level treatments for patients who do have cancer in the end. Yeah. So, and, and when is that financial ROI recognized approximately? Years down the line. And you, uh, three months is when that financial ROI has to be recognized. Fair. Um, and, and this is kind of somewhat sadistic. And we know our, our financial statements are quarterly. Maybe they shouldn't be. Maybe for healthcare, we should be like, no, that's not the model we should follow. Maybe we should look at healthcare companies, you know, when their annual statements or quarterly statements. Maybe we should, we're not going to have any money statements five years. But then you're changing how business is done and, you know, reporting requirements and accounting. That's a whole other discussion there. Uh, but you need to show it within three months. Fair enough. That's what I'll kind of say there. Fair enough. And, and, and solving clinician burnout does not show, directly doesn't show. Yes. So, you know, this is why we invested in SOAP is even though their, their platform can potentially reduce clinician burnout, it, it's adding revenue right there and there. Mm-hmm. And then you get into incentives for the clinic versus the payer. Mm-hmm. So in a payvider model, incentives are somewhat Line like Kaiser Permanente, uh, but in the traditional and the usual model, they're not. And in Valley based care, again, and you have to get into Valley being measured by the process and not the outcome, because the outcomes incentivize perverse behaviors. And a good, a great example is readmission rates, where if you say we want less readmission rates, okay, I'll admit people, or less likely, then I will not admit any single cell patient. And you're essentially punishing low SES. Poor people, uh, black people, brown people, immigrants, um, because they're the ones who have higher readmission rates, got poor outcomes. Yeah. And the best way to control outcomes is to, you know, make people white, make them male, and make rich. You will only provide care to those people. Because, and, and I think it's, it's so important to recognize that, because then you say, okay, I will incentivize you offering an appointment or a phone service or something to everyone who's just shot from the hospital. And that's the incentive. I'll measure the outcomes, but your reimbursement is tied directly to the process. Adam Grant talks about this. Good process or outcome should be incentivized. Poor process, good outcome should not be incentivized. That's luck. And that's external luck, not not the luck where, you know, preparation meets up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'll pause there, Jeff, because you know, I'm going to attend. Got, I've got two more of these statements to go through. We've got a little time left, but uh, okay. empowering communities for patients, which enable them to make their own decisions and shift accountability to the decision maker. Um, so you kind of talked about this in point A, but if you could 
highlight who the decision maker is in this statement. That'd be great. Yeah, so it would be the patient. It's kind of tied to the first uh, point where, um, you know, patients are making their own decisions based on TikTok, right? And based on other patients, they're saying, why not have them make decisions based on based mm-hmm. science? But why are communities so important to the kind of patient decision maker complex? I think that's just human nature. We divide ourselves into people who value community, don't, the vast majority do. And the vast majority look at, if you look at tools of marketing, social proof is one strong reciprocity, emergency, you have the other ones. Um, but social proof is incredibly important. I think having that community, having other, connected others like you, you know, maybe looking at the evidence together and reaching together with some guidance, I think is incredibly And I guess, are there any startups in particular that highlight this specific statement for you that come to mind? You know, there there was one I met here ago, Kiratio that was doing this. Mm -hmm. I think uh, Michael O'Brien, I'll shout out to him, cyclist salvation. They're kind of working on this, and I'm sure I'm blanking on a a few, but there's a couple I can mention. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. And the last statement you have is epigenetics will drive precision medicine. We've just started to uncover disease processes and target reversal instead of attenuation. Uh, again, could you explain that in English? And then, <laughs> you know, we focus on the end effects or the physical effects of diseases, not their true uh, pathophysiology yeah. often. Um, there's very few things we tend to reverse, uh, you know, t- diabetes, high blood pressure. So for high blood pressure, we want to reduce high blood pressure, but we don't actually focus on the pathophysiology of high blood pressure. What are the changes happening in the wall? Um, what is driving high blood pressure or clot formation or work let's try it? And I'm not going to get too technical. I think there's, there's a, a gap here where we can focus more on the pathophysiology of diseases and have more targeted therapies to reverse disease. And epigenetics is a tool that could help here. So epigenetics is essentially how your genes respond to stimuli in the environment to use your uh, phenotype. Uh, so the, a few ways to do it is one of the ways is DNA methylation, histones is another way, the other third ways that epigenetics kind of impacts your genes to produce different. And I think looking at population data there, could give us access to identifying, okay, why is this disease happening? How can we reverse it? Now, the catch here is because when you you think about it, the human genome is so vast. And if you look at all the permutations, you're going in the trillions at times. We have to use AI to look at these permutations. Inherent biosciences are doing this. Company awareness. Um, And AI is a black box. You have to be comfortable with, we don't know why this is reversing the disease, but it is. We have good evidence. You know, that ties into using AI for clinical trials, and that's a whole other space. Mm-hmm. To, to, to play the devil's advocate to that specific statement about targeting reversal instead of attenuation, though, doesn't that reverse the disease itself completely and result in, well, benefit for the patient? But at the end of the day, shrinking of the market overall, resulting in, essentially for businesses, a smaller market target. I think that goes back to pricing. Yeah. And price is more, so it's still 
effective. You know, the, the goal of healthcare is for it to not exist. Yeah. In, like, in an altruistic sense. Um, but so much of our outcomes are determined by societal factors or our gender, our diet, that, you know. How, how much do we actually affect the patient's health? I think it's an uncomfortable truth. We, we are not changing patient's health. So it's, yeah. it's all these other factors that are having an outsized effect. On yeah, that's fair enough. All right. Thanks for making time to talk. Before we hop off, do you have any pluggables to plug anything that you're working in particular that you'd like uh, people to reach out to you for uh, or to listen to your podcast for? Yeah, I mean, if you want to reach to me, reach out to me, you can uh, email hello at healthtechinvestors.com or uh, find me on LinkedIn. Uh, and I, I don't want to say I get back to everyone because I don't. But if you send an email, I will do my best to get back to you. LinkedIn is a little bit too much these days. Yeah. All right. Okay. Thank you so much for shot. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of How It's Med. If you liked what you heard, the best way to support us is to go to your podcast platform, be it Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever you like, and to give us a rating and a recommendation or a comment so that others can best find us. If you can't do that, then we'd really appreciate it if you could share your favorite episode with those that you care about and who you think would find our work interesting. Till next time.